Well, uh, we are continuing in our series through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So you can open up to Matthew 5 if you have uh, your Bible with you. Uh, And uh, this morning, if if you're just joining us or if you haven't been around for a while, we are in the portion of his sermon where Jesus is dealing with the law uh, and he is addressing six antitheses. Uh, That is, there are six sections that begin with something like this. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, now scholars uh, and theologians have disagreed precisely on what Jesus is doing here. Uh, Some have argued that Jesus is um, repealing the law. Some that he is intensifying the law. Uh, But really what we have been seeing over the past couple weeks is that uh, Jesus is actually upholding God's true intent for the law. Over time, the religious leaders had taken the law and they had twisted it and distorted it. And now Jesus has come to to set the record straight on the law. So this morning we come to Jesus teaching on oath-taking and vows, but more broadly on words and how we speak uh, as Christians, as people who are a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, So that seems like it might be slightly relevant uh, to how we live our lives, how we speak, uh, and the words that we use. So uh, if you have your your Bible there, you can uh, follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read Matthew 5, starting in verse 33. We read this. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let me pray. Lord, this is your word, and we are reminded that uh, all of your Words, all of Scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching and uh, reproof and admonishment and correction. Uh, we, we trust you that your word is good for us, and we pray now by your Spirit that you would minister your word to us, uh, that we would sit under its authority and its goodness. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, your word as it is sown would take root in our hearts and bear the fruit of faith and the fruit of good works that, that please you and give honor to your name. Lord, we pray uh, that we would see, even here in this text, uh, your Son, Jesus Christ, and the good news of the gospel, and that our hearts would find rest in him again. Lord, nourish these brothers and sisters by your word. Instruct us and teach us. Cause us to depend more fully on you, we pray, through this time. Amen. You good? You with me? Yes? Okay, here we go. Uh, it, it, it does seem particularly appropriate in this new location that we're in uh, that we should talk about Jesus teaching on truth-telling and oaths, taking oaths. Uh, I have no doubt that here in this very room, men and women have put their hands on Bibles 
and taken oaths and sworn oaths to uh, carry out an office, uh, to uh, serve this community, or, or to give testimony. What, what should we make of Jesus' words here about taking oaths? Some Christians have taught that Jesus forbids all forms of oath-taking. But as we go along, I hope what you'll see is that Jesus is actually making a much larger point about life in the kingdom of God. One of the main themes that runs through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is the theme of integrity. Integrity. There's a, an internal reality that gives birth to a new way of living so that you're not only someone who doesn't commit the act of murder, but now your heart resists anger and even apathy towards others. You're not only someone who doesn't commit the act of adultery, but your heart now resists even looking at another with lust. You're not someone who commits to someone in marriage as long as they never upset you, but yours is a lifelong covenantal commitment no matter what comes. And now here we come to the topic of integrity in our speech. Integrity in our speech. So here's what I think Jesus is teaching us in this passage. It's that Christians are to live with an absolute integrity of speech because they belong to a Savior who always keeps His word. The Christians are to live a life that is marked by an absolute integrity of speech because they belong to a Savior who always keeps His word. Uh, So let's look at this passage under three headings. Uh, Jesus gives a negative command or a prohibition, then he gives his instruction, and then we find the transformation that is necessary to live out this command. So a prohibition, instruction, and the need for transformation. Uh, Let's look first at Jesus' prohibition. Look at verse 33. And uh, again, I just encourage you, have your Bibles out. I want you, like I don't want you to just take my word for it here. I want you to see what is being said there in the scripture. So if you've got your Bible open, verse 33, we read this again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, this is not a direct quotation from the Old Testament. It is a summary of the religious leaders' teaching on passages in the Old Testament, like the third commandment, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Uh, passages like Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. Uh, but look how Jesus responds to the religious leader's teaching, to this summary that Jesus gives. He, it, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Now again, the, these are antitheses, right? In other words, Jesus is co- contrasting their incorrect view and application of the law with his correct view and application of the law. So, of course, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how are the religious leaders messing up the law here? What is incorrect about their view? And at first glance, it doesn't really look wrong, does it? Look at it again. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Sounds good to me. 
What's the issue? Now, now uh, some have understood the issue as oath-taking itself, that Jesus here is condemning and forbidding the practice of taking oaths altogether. And they would point to Jesus' words here, don't take an oath at all. The, the problem with this view, though, is that it makes the rest of the Bible very confusing. Because we find God in the Old Testament commanding His people to swear by His name. We find Jesus willing to speak under oath at His trial before Caiaphas. We find Paul in his epistles regularly swearing by God's name. For example, in speaking to the Corinthians, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.23, he says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. And you'll hear this all throughout Paul's epistles. But God is my witness. God is my witness. He's swearing by God's name to give authority and and, uh, weight behind what he's saying. So if Jesus is giving an absolute prohibition against swearing or oath-taking, we have to reckon with the fact that his teaching is inconsistent with the explicit command of the Old Testament. We have to reckon with the fact that he himself does not abide by his own teaching. And then we also have to reckon with the fact that his disciples then seemingly just ignore his instruction. Or, and I think this seems more likely, that Jesus is not against the practice of taking oaths, but that there is something about the way the religious leaders are taking oaths and and weigh a, a, a problem with the way that they are swearing that does not accord with God's law. And I think that's exactly what we find in verse 34. So look, look down, one, one verse down, verse 34. Uh, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So part of what you need to know is that by Jesus' day, oath-taking was very common, and lots of ink had been spilled on what constituted a binding oath. What were the conditions for a binding oath? The Mishnah, which was a rabbinic commentary on the law, included a lengthy treatment on when precisely oaths were binding. Now, the law required them to swear by God's name. So if they didn't technically swear by God's name, then they reasoned that they were technically off the hook. By the first century, of course, it was Jewish, Jewish custom to refrain from actually saying God's name. And so the religious leaders developed a complex system of rules for when you were required to keep an oath and when you were free to break it. So, for example, one rabbi taught that to swear by Jerusalem was not binding, but to swear towards Jerusalem was binding. It sounds very, like, on brand for the Pharisees, right? Jesus gives more examples of these arbitrary rules. Just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up. If you, if you flip ahead to Matthew 23, there's a section where Jesus pronounces woes or curses upon the Pharisees. And in one section, this is what he says. 
He says, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Or again, he says, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. Jesus says, you blind fools. You see, in the end, uh, all these rules, this complex system, was really just a clever way for the religious leaders to justify deceiving people for their own gain. That's what the system amounted to. It was the ancient equivalent of making a promise with your fingers crossed behind your back. And so one commentator concluded that the whole practice of swearing oaths degenerated into a system of terrible rules which let you know when you can get away with lying and deception and when you can't. And so you see, it's, it's not the practice of oath-taking in and of itself that Jesus was condemning, but it's this arbitrary collection of rules that had become a, systema- a, a systematized way of justifying deceit, justifying lying, and falsehood. And so Jesus says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, or by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. To Jesus, these rules are the epitome of hypocrisy. They thought that if they weren't technically swearing by God's name, then they were off the hook, not bound to keep their oath. But Jesus says, you fools, you blind fools, don't you know that heaven is the throne of God? Don't you know that earth is his footstool? Don't you know that Jerusalem is his city? And don't you know that you are his creation? One pastor summarized it this way. He said, to swear by anything is to swear by God because in some sense, God stands behind everything. You see, Jesus is setting the record straight by getting to the heart of the matter. What's behind these rules is not a desire to honor God's name, but a desire to justify deceiving people and not keeping your word. That's what Jesus is putting his finger on. That's what Jesus is condemning. This system of rules that justifies deceit, that justifies not keeping your word. And now listen, it's easy to look down at the religious leaders, those terrible Pharisees. But what about us? What about you? Are are there little systems you have created in your own life to justify lying? To excuse not keeping your word? To absolve yourself from telling the truth? Maybe you say to yourself, I'm not really hurting anyone. Maybe you say, uh, I'm just trying to protect his or her feelings. Maybe you say, you know, everyone fudges the truth a little bit. That's just how the world works. Are, Are there little systems that you've put in place to justify lying, to justify deceit, to justify falsehood? Deception takes root like a cancer in your soul, and it infects everything. Charles Spurgeon was preaching a sermon on a similar topic, uh, and he 
gave this somber reminder. He said, I've heard of men who mark a hundred as a hundred and twenty, and who mark goods of certain lengths when they know they are not of such lengths. And they say, it is the custom of the trade. Well, if it be the custom of your trade to lie, remember that it is God's custom to send all liars to hell. God is a God of truth, and he won't be mocked. Jesus condemns this spirit of deception and falsehood. that's That's his negative instruction. That's his prohibition. Let's look at his positive instruction. Jesus condemns this kind of thinking and behavior. Instead, he says in verse 37, and here's the, this is the positive instruction, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Let what you say be simply yes or no. In other words, for Jesus, life in the kingdom is marked by a relentless integrity of speech and a dogged commitment to the truth. A relentless integrity of speech and a dogged commitment to the truth. He's saying everything that comes out of your mouth should be as if you're under oath. Your your, your word is your bond. You you don't break promises. You, You keep your word. You speak the truth. You always mean what you say. A simple yes and a simple no suffices because there are no degrees of truth in the kingdom of God. Everything you say is as if you had your hand on a stack of Bibles. There's nothing you say that needs to be bolstered by some you know, elevated oath-taking because everything you say is true. There aren't special conditions that make it permissible for you to break your word. Uh, your yes is always yes. It means yes. And your no always means no. And no one ever has to wonder if you're telling the truth. No one ever has to wonder if you'll follow through on what you said. Uh, are, are you someone that is committed to the truth in every circumstance, even when it's hard and costly. Are you someone that's committed to the truth in every circumstance, even when it's hard and costly? Now listen, there are two, two kinds of people in this room right now as it pertains to this question. Some of you are willing to tell the truth and you don't care who it hurts. <laughs> you're, you're like, I'm a truth person and you just let it rip. And uh, we thank the Holy Spirit for inspiring Ephesians 4, which tells us that we ought to speak the truth in love, right? And so the, emph- the emphasis for that person is speak the truth by all means, but speak it in love. But then there are others of you that are intimidated or afraid to speak the truth, either about yourself or about others. And what you need to be reminded of is that the Lord Jesus commands us to speak the truth, and that speaking the truth is actually a loving act. It's loving to tell the truth. Are you someone that always tells the truth? Are you someone that follows through and and keeps your word? 
in your work with your boss, with your employees? Are you the kind of person whose word is reliable? When you say you're going to do something, do you just brush it off and brush it off and then make excuses? Or do you faithfully do what you say you're going to do? In your marriage, do you make promises to your spouse but then drop the ball and and, and not follow through? Are you in the practice of telling little lies that you tell yourself are okay because it will keep the peace at home? Are you someone that your friends and extended family can count on to tell the truth and to keep your word? For those of you that are parents, have your children gotten used to the disappointment of you saying you'll make time for them, but you rarely do because you're too busy? What about your fellow members in this church? When you say you'll pray for someone, do you? It's easy to say, I'll pray for you. I'm I'm praying for that. Do you pray? When someone asks to, to meet up or give you a call, do you give them a little fib about plans that you have because you're, you're too tired to deal with it? Oh, we're so busy. I wish I could. Or do you tell the truth? Now, let me say one more thing about oaths here. I've already said that I don't think what Jesus is doing here is forbidding oath-taking. I think what he's driving at is this life of integrity, an integrity of speech, that your, your word is your bond, that when you say something, you mean it. And in fact, I think the Scriptures positively teach us that there is a time when oath-taking is appropriate. Testifying in court, taking an oath of office, or even I can remember when I was a kid, I was a Cub Scout for like three months but then it was just like arts and crafts, and I wasn't about it, so then I wasn't. But every time we would practice like the, the scout oath, you know, I, th- I think that, that could, that's appropriate. Or, or what about a wedding? When you get married, you pledge an oath before God, before your spouse, b- before witnesses, to, to remain faithful. You make a solemn vow before God. That's deeply appropriate. Let me talk about one more oath or vow, or swear that I think is deeply appropriate. Uh, The covenant of membership in a church. If you're a member in this church, you, you have signed a membership covenant and therefore made a vow or taken an oath to fulfill the obligations of your membership to this body. Now, as elders, I want you to understand we acknowledge that the Scriptures don't explicitly command us to do this. They don't explicitly command churches to have membership covenants. But we believe that there is biblical wisdom and precedent behind this practice, uh, that the gravity and significance of church membership, especially in our culture, demands some kind of formal commitment that says to God and says to one another, I promise or I vow or I take an oath to fulfill these wonderful, difficult, beautiful, privileged, privileged obligations with the help of God's grace. So I was reviewing our, our members' covenant and, and, and remembering again the vows that 
I have taken and the vows that we all as members of the church have taken our vows to live as disciples of Jesus. Our vow to submit to God's word, to faithfully gather with this body for corporate worship, to labor in love for unity, to care for the physical and spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in the Lord, to seek to encourage and build them up in Jesus, to seek the salvation of the lost by proclaiming the gospel and living a life shaped by the gospel, to give generously to the ministry of the church for the advance of the gospel, to respect and submit to the elders God has called to lead this church. If you have signed that membership covenant, uh, I lovingly urge you to take Jesus' word seriously uh, here about keeping your word. If you have not committed in, in that way to this church or to any other church, I would urge you to join a faithful gospel-preaching church and commit yourself to it, to, 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 uh, in a, to, to make an oath, to, to swear a kind of oath that you would labor in the grace of God to fulfill your promises for the glory of God and for the good of your fellow brothers and sisters. You see, for, for Jesus, life in the kingdom is marked by a radical integrity and a, rent, a relentless truth-telling. Your yes means yes. Your no means no. I prayed along these lines just a few moments ago, but the church is, is the light of the world, which is in darkness. The truth brings light, but deceit and lies and half-truths bring darkness. And you know, if, if, if you're someone... Uh, that, that struggles with lying and deceit, you, you know the guilt and the shame and the darkness that it brings. Yeah, Mark Twain said this about lying. He said, uh, you know, the difference between a person who tells the truth and tells a lie is that the liar has got to have a better memory. That's the darkness that, that deceit and lies plunge us into having to, to keep track of all the little lies that we've told. Lying forces you to live in the darkness of your own deception. But in the kingdom, in the kingdom there is truth and light and freedom. So the question then is, is how do we live these kinds of lives that are marked by radical integrity and a dogged commitment to the truth. We've seen Jesus' prohibition and his instruction, but now how do we live it out? And the answer is that we need to be transformed by God. We need God's grace to break in the God who always keeps his word by the Lord Jesus Christ who is the truth and the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth to break into our lives and transform us from the inside out. That's the third heading here, transformation, our need for transformation. Let me show you why I'm emphasizing this idea of transformation here. Look at Jesus' logic at the very end of this passage. Verse 37, he says, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, this propensity, this bent towards lying and deceiving has a source. 
It has an origin. This complex system of rules that the Pharisees created to justify their own deceit had a, a fountainhead. It had a source. Jesus identifies that source as evil. Now, some translations, if you're reading out of the NIV or the CSB, they render this, uh, any, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. That's certainly possible. Jesus refers to our enemy, Satan, as the father of lies. But really, no matter how you translate this, the net effect is that there is evil within us. Either our deceit is flowing directly from the evil that is in us, or Satan, because he is evil, is capitalizing on how easy it is to lie to us and how easily we believe lies because of the evil within us. In other words, while we may be inclined to think that we are given to lying because of external circumstances, and I wonder how many of you think that. You, you know, you find yourselves in some deception. You find even something small, and you, you justify it by your circumstances. While we may be inclined to think that we're given to lying because of external circumstances, the reality is that we lie and we deceive because there is something terribly wrong inside our hearts. Do you remember how the Lord describes the human heart in Jeremiah? It's very sobering. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You ever sat and contemplated that? The heart is deceitful above all things. Above everything else, the human heart in its sinful condition bends towards deceit. Think of Jesus' words in Mark 7. He said, what comes out of a person is not what defiles him, defiles him for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, our problem is not our circumstances, but our sickness, the sickness that has taken root in our hearts. And the only way that we can ever live this kind of kingdom life that's marked by integrity and truthfulness is if God graciously and supernaturally transforms us. Brothers and sisters, I want you to feel the weight of your helplessness to stand up under the deceit of your own heart apart from God's grace. Do you realize that apart from God's grace, your only possibility is to, is to live a life telling lies and believing lies? The good news is that this is exactly what God does for his people in Jesus Christ. This is the exact transformation that God brings through his son. How does he do it? 
He sends truth himself into the world, into a world of lies. He sends light himself into a world of darkness, his own perfect son into a world of sin. He is reviled, he is mocked, and on the basis of a lie is strung up on a tree and crucified where he willingly takes our place. All the punishment for our deceit and for our lies and for all our falsehood is placed on him and he is crushed under the just judgment of what we deserve so that we might be given his righteousness and made new by faith in him through the power of the Spirit. This is what, this is what Peter says. First Peter 2, he says of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Do you hear transformation? That you might die to sin and live to righteousness. That the sickness that is in you might be healed. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, we die to sin and live to righteousness. Through the gospel, God, by his spirit, takes darkness and turns it into light. He takes liars and turns them into lovers of truth. He takes deceivers and turns them into daughters and sons of God. Listen to Paul's logic in Colossians 3. Paul puts it this way. He says, do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Do you hear the language of transformation? Don't lie to one another. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. Now look, let me ask you a question. I want to I sort of like do a little uh, like case study here. Why do you lie? Think about it. Why do you lie? I, di- I did some research, and there's, there's lots of articles that give you all these different reasons, like different motivations for why we lie, but really you can boil them down to two reasons. Two reasons why we lie. Two reasons why you lie. Here they are. You ready? The first one is to avoid punishment. You avoid punishment. So think uh, think of a little kid who gets caught stealing but lies about it because he's afraid of being punished. It's completely useless, right? If you're the parent, it's completely useless. Like you know what they have done, but they look you right in your face and they tell you they have no idea what you're talking about. So it's a blatant, outright lie because they're afraid of punishment. And we think, how could they believe this lie is actually going to work? But, but brothers and sisters, we, we do the exact same thing before God and before one another. It's hardwired into our sinful nature, right? We are like Adam and Eve. You remember what Adam and Eve do? They sin, and then they try and cover it up, try and lie about it. They try and cover it up. And you know how they try and cover it up? Some fig leaves. And you go, really? Like, you think that's going to that's gonna hide it? That's going to cover it up? 
a lie, uh, crafted to, take re- uh, to avoid taking responsibility for their sin. And why? Uh, we're, we're terrified to be confronted with our sin because our hearts, in our hearts, we know that our sin deserves punishment. And so we deny, deny, deny. We get defensive, we make excuses, we fabricate stories, whatever lie it takes to get the spotlight off of our sin. But I, I say this to my kids, and I'm sure you, if you have kids, you say this to your kids as well. A lie always makes it worse. A lie always makes it worse. That's reason number one. Why do we lie? To avoid punishment. Here's the second one. To acquire a prize. It's either to avoid punishment, to acquire a prize. There's some advantage held out to us if we will only just fudge on the truth. A little lie on an application that makes you look more qualified than you actually are. So you get the job. A slight embellishment in a story about yourself to win the admiration of others. A small adjustment to your report, to your reported income, so the the government taxes you on less and you get to keep more of your money. There's something you think that if I just have it, then everything will be okay, and this is how we justify lying to get it. But don't you see how the gospel answers both of these things? Don't you see how the gospel disrupts and short circuits both of these sinful motivations? See, God comes to you by His Son, Jesus Christ, and says, through His death, your sins are forgiven and washed away. He, he took the full punishment that you deserved upon himself on the cross. Every ounce of punishment that you deserve for past, present, and future sins was paid for when his body was broken and when God poured out his wrath on him instead of you. So there is no punishment left for you. The cup of God's wrath that you deserve to drink is empty. And, and so do you know what that means? It means You don't have to hide your sin or lie about it anymore. The gospel sets us free in Christ to be honest about our failures and our sins. Now, don't get me wrong here. There may be earthly consequences for sin. Surely there will be. But the thing underneath, really, that makes us lie is this abiding sense of the punishment that we deserve before God. And those consequences, those earthly consequences, are easy to bear when you know that you no longer bear the guilt and the shame and the punishment for your sin before God. The gospel sets you free to be relentlessly truthful about your own weaknesses and your own sin. Why? Because on the cross, those sins have been accounted for. There is no punishment for you. You don't have to fear punishment from God. And so you can be honest. So you don't have to cover things up. You don't have to lie about them. And don't you see by the gospel, he's also given you every advantage. Every blessing, every promise. There's no advantage when you have come to Christ in faith 
you realize there's no advantage here in this earth worth lying for because you know that Christ, that God in Christ has given you everything that you need. He's given you himself and he's given you the promise of eternal life. You have every promise of God in him. Look, this is Paul's logic in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, uh, and listen to how similar the language is. He's, he's, he's writing to the Corinthians. He says, for, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, uh, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him, that it, it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. When, when you know all of God's promises are yours in Christ. There's no advantage lying can get you that you don't already have. Sure, I'll grant you, you may, you may lose out on a job or you may uh, you know, be missing uh, some financial benefit. But what is that compared to the promises of God in Christ? What is that compared to the eternal inheritance that you have been given in Christ? You see, God's word to us in Christ is all his promises are yes. He says to you, I give you my word. And don't you see, this is the very basis of our salvation. God's faithful word. That God himself has sworn an oath and made a covenant with us. You know, when, when God made his covenant with Abraham, do you remember this in Genesis 15? When God makes his covenant with Abraham, he did what was the custom, you know, animals are cut in half, and traditionally two parties would walk through. And what that signified was them saying to one another, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, may it be done to me as it's been done to these animals. Cut in half, destroyed. But do you remember what happens when God makes his covenant with Abraham? He causes a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham. Animals cut in half, Abraham's on the side asleep. And this smoking fire pot makes its way through between the animals, signifying the presence of God. And do you know what God is saying when that happens? He's taking on himself the burden and responsibility of fulfilling the covenant, not only for him, but for Abraham as well. And, he sa- and what he's saying is, if Abraham fails to uphold the end of the end of my covenant, may it be done to me as it was done to these animals. And don't you know, thousands of years later, our failure to keep the covenant, the punishment, the just penalty for failing to obey the covenant was not placed on us and was not placed on Abraham's descendants, but was placed on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus makes an oath with Abraham. One pastor gave this example in a sermon. There's a, a old marriage vows in the, um, the Anglican, the, the Book of Prayer, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, and, and they go like this. Uh, you know, I, husband, take thee uh, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereto... I plight thee my troth. Anyone say that at their wedding? I plight thee my troth? I did not. But after reading this, I kind of wish we did. I plight thee my troth. Uh, 
I, I heard this example uh, from an, an, another pastor, so I can't take credit for it. But uh, I plight thee my troth. It means I pledge you my loyalty. But notice that word plight. The word plight is helpful because it also means difficulty or danger or trouble. And that's what you do in marriage, right? You open yourself up to trouble. You open yourself up to danger, right? Your spouse's pain becomes your pain. Their problems become your problems. Their debt becomes your debt. And don't you see, this is the oath that God makes with his people and fulfills in Jesus Christ. He has taken our greatest problem upon his back and made it his own so that we could be free. And by his life and death and resurrection, he has pledged himself to us, saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will give you rest for your soul. All God's promises are yes in Christ. He pledges himself to his people, saying, I will never leave. I am yours, and you are mine. You know, there's this wonderful place in Hebrews 6 where we read of God's compassionate encouragement of his people. It goes like this, Hebrews 6, 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which are, by the way, the promise and the oath, by these two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Brothers and sisters, do you know that the confidence, your hope, your whole life as a believer is built upon this reality that God has made an oath and he never lies. He always keeps his promises. He always fulfills his word. He never breaks a promise. We're going to sing this in a moment. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Brothers and sisters, do you know what saving faith is? Saving faith is taking God at his word. It's seeing the reality of your sin, the reality of your brokenness. It's seeing the reality of what you deserve and then hearing God say to you in Christ Jesus, I've dealt with it. It's done. And believing it. That's faith that saves Trusting that he is a God who always keeps his promises. Brothers and sisters, do you know that? You have a God who always keeps his promises. He never fails to keep his word. He never makes an oath and doesn't keep it. Why are you here this morning? Because God is faithful. Why will you make it to glory? Because God is faithful. 
because he keeps his promises. Not because you're strong, not because you have your act together, not because you know, you're some super Christian and you're just growing and all these. Praise God, he causes us to grow and the work that he begins on us, that he begins on us, he will bring to completion because he is faithful. He is the one who keeps us. He is the one who fulfills his promises. It's God work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That's why we're here. That's why we can have confidence. That's why we don't have to be afraid, and it's why we can tell the truth. Because God keeps his promises. When this reality takes root in your heart, you are set free from the lies. Set free to live a life of truth. No longer fearing punishment, right? Any punishment in this life is insignificant compared to the punishment I deserve because of my sin. But that has been removed. In Jesus, I have everything I want and everything I need in knowing him. And so don't I have to lie to get what I want? I have all that I need in him. And so in Christ, we are set free to live with an absolute integrity of speech for the glory of God because you belong to a Savior who always keeps his word, who is faithful, who will never leave or abandon you. Brothers and sisters, God always keeps his promises. And his promises are all yes in Christ. Amen? Now let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you always keep your word, that you always keep your promises. And we take comfort and rest again in knowing that it's not our striving, it's not our laboring that will preserve us, but it is your faithfulness, your word, your oath, your covenant. So Lord, help us to rest again in your goodness. And as we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next, by seeing the gospel and seeing your, your uh, pledge and your loyalty and your commitment to us in love. Help us to live lives of truth, that our yes would be yes, our no would be no, that our lives would be marked by a, an integrity of speech. Not fearing punishment, not looking to, to wring out of this life fleeting pleasures by, by little lies, but knowing that we have all that we need in you. And Lord, help us as we live in this way to be a light in a world of lies and in a world of darkness that many more would come to the truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.